Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Bloodline, the new book by Skip Heitzig, takes you on a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. Bloodline is available wherever books are sold. It is Wednesday, March 27th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, we will be talking about the state of Christian books and Christian bookstores. Mark Taylor from Tyndale will be discussing that with us today. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, my co-host, Mark Allen. Hey. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. How many times do I have to say welcome back? Quite a show? bit. This um, week I got to do two of my favorite things. I was on a writing retreat, which is a euphemism for a fishing retreat as well. So, <laughs> But I got a lot of writing done for the company, so that's good. That is exciting. And you got to be outside in the spring, which yeah. is and so, and a gift. Uh, in the middle of Arkansas, which is a little warmer than here right now. So that was nice. All right. So why are we being joined by a second Mark today? Ah, we are joined by Mark Taylor, who has held various posts at Tyndale Publishing House since 1984, certainly. Yeah, he's been, he is chairman and CEO currently. He's been involved in publishing most of his life since his parents started the company when he was 11. He's served as chief stylist and director of the Bible Translation Committee for the New Living Translation. And I'm excited about having him because he's just been a key player in book publishing for decades. And so he will have some, I think, some insights for us to consider as we talk about that topic today. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good to be with you. So is it fair to say I'm sitting with two titans of Christian publishing? Two people who are (laughs) on the mark. Yeah, that's something like that. Okay. <laughs> Are you just, no. This is this is clearly a Titanic event. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Did you guys well, how how long have you been at Tyndale for? 45, almost 46 years. Okay, yeah. And I've been at CT for 30, so we got 76 years of mistakes behind us. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's Mark I've, I've, lofty. Uh, this is not flattery, Mark, but I have long admired and said so in it with other people, not just with you in the room, uh, of your publishing savvy in this very volatile time the last few decades. So I'm really glad you could come be with us today. And for those who don't know, Tyndale's actually CT's Carol Stream neighbor. So it's also Yeah, cool just to... down the road. We've done a lot of things together. All right. Well, let's get in. I'm sure it might be kind of obvious to some what we're talking about, but in case everyone missed it, actually back in 2008, we here at Christianity Today ran a cover story entitled How to Save the Christian Bookstore. So we discussed the various challenges the physical bookstore then faced, including the rise of online stores like Amazon. Some may be familiar with that. As the article put it, to paraphrase Mark Twain, rumors of the Christian bookstore's demise may be exaggerated. Last week, though, contrary to our earlier optimism, Lifeway Christian Resources, the largest Christian retail chain in America, announced that it would be closing all of its 170 stores this year. This news came two years after its competitor, Family Christian Resources, 
shut down all its 240 locations in the midst of mounting debt and bankruptcy. Another Christian retailer, Cokesbury Bookstores, closed all 38 retail stores in 2013. We didn't see all this coming quickly. Perhaps this is why we aren't called Christian Prophecy today. That is courtesy of Mark. <laughs> in case you wanted to know who was trying to make a joke there, here. It was an attempt at humor, so... <laughs> All right. So as Amazon and other online shopping outlets, but mostly Amazon, continue to upend the industry, the big question is how will this impact Christian book publishing and what's next for this industry? What difference will it make for the Christian reader of books? All right, Mark, this is definitely due for a good gut check because this is pretty big news as as we saw with our own stats of all the people that wanted to read about this news last week when this came out. So Yeah, it was our one of our highest trafficked news stories in a long, long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, several years. So, yeah, I'm kind of a hypocrite here because I was managing editor when we published this article about optimism about the bookstore. And yet when the news came out, I wasn't that surprised uh, because you've been hearing bookstore chain after bookstore chain folding. I was amazed that any continue. There's there's a little bookstore in downtown Glen Ellen that continues year after year. I don't know if they're making money or if it's a, a boutique type place. But anytime I see a bookstore open, physical bookstore, I'm just amazed. So it wasn't all that surprising that Lifeway just couldn't make it. You know, I, I covered some of the Family Christian Resources news when this happened a couple years ago. And I actually had never even heard of either of these chains. I'm assuming it's because I grew up in the Bay Area where we had one small independent Christian bookstore in the actually the city that I lived in, but neither of these chains were there. But after Family Christian Resources shut down, I thought that this would give Lifeway some sort of an opportunity to gain more of a foothold in the market with, you know, one of their main competitors not there anymore. But I, I haven't been to a Christian bookstore in ages, so I also wasn't exactly sure how they were still drawing people in. Of course, every single brick and mortar store really suffers from the problem of often serving as um, the product showroom <laughs> and that's for all. Yeah, Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, earlier we were talking about triathlons and biking. And when I did a triathlon last year, actually one of the places that we did a lot of kind of have like the training out of they shut down. They had like bikes for sale and other products for sale. And I think it's because of the same reason where people want to go in there. They want to have the personalized staff recommendations. They want to have some sort of human walking them through it on the other end, but they don't want to pay for the actual type of experience that they're getting when they are very well aware they can buy all those products without having to pay more of that online. So it feels really sad to say that it feels like an inevitable demise of something, but I also feel... Like, yeah, I'm with you. Like, it's not completely shocking in that way. All right. So, Mark Taylor, we are interested in getting your opinion on this Lifeway news, but maybe we can back up a little bit to get some context about what's going on. When we're talking about, like, the Christian publishing world or the Christian book industry, what kind of came first, these Christian bookstores or the Christian or Christian publishing? I don't know when Christian bookstores first became an independent kind of uh, retailer. Some of the Christian publishers go back to the 19th century. For instance, Fleming Revell, which is now part of Baker. Uh, My recollection goes back to the late 1950s, and there were thousands of independent Christian bookstores. There were a few small chains. There was a Berean bookstore chain. Mm -hmm. I remember that. But 
I don't know if Lifeway existed as a chain in those days. Family Christian uh, was actually owned by Zondervan Publishing Company back in those days. So it was called the Zondervan Chain of Stores. But for the most part, the Christian bookstores were independent stores back into the 1950s, and they really came on strong in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But it did raise, and I'm glad we have Mark on today, because it did raise questions. How we, how are we going to, in a sense, help Christian readers know that there are some really good books out there? Because that was one service that Christian bookstores did. They they picked out what they thought were the best uh, books for people to read and that, that they could sell. And they had some knowledge of the books and the authors and the publisher. Uh, representatives from the publishers would come and visit the bookstore, and they'd come to visit the book buyer, and they'd come with their catalog, and they would basically pitch the books to your to you as the book buyer. Why you should get this book? Why it would fit your particular bookstore's uh, you know readership? Then we would buy so many copies, buy five copies, we buy ten copies, with the idea that we could return them if they didn't sell. Uh, so it was a very personal. A lot of one-on-one sales, promotion. So by the time that book got to the on the bookshelf, there had already been a number of human beings involved in deciding that for this community, these books were the things that we think are the most important for you. And now that that process is gone, there is still another process in place, which I want to hear about more, but that gives you an idea of what it was like in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yes, at one time, Tyndale House had 10 or 12 sales reps who had territories, and they would do exactly what you're describing. They would go into a bookstore, pitch our new products to the buyer of the, at the store, and uh, walk out with an order of products that that store buyer, often the owner, said, yes, I can sell these products in my community. Now we're down to three of those sales reps because there just aren't very many bookstores left out there. Well, it also seems like the people that you would be having those conversations with changed in the sense that from what I understand, Lifeway and Family Christian also kind of took over some of these independent bookstores as well. And so then you would be working with whoever the execs are there to be picking all that type of stuff rather than working with the mom and pop stores. I'm wondering at what point you began to see Lifeway and Family Christian acquire some of the family-owned stores? I suppose it goes back 15 to 20 years. Family Christian said at one point that they wanted to have, I think, 500 stores, you know, just a huge, huge number. They got up to 240 or 250, but they were not operating profitably. They were a for-profit company, then they converted to being a not-for-profit company. So the implication there was they didn't have to pay income tax, but if you don't have income, you don't have to pay income tax anyway. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And finally, uh, they actually went through bankruptcy one time, and all of the suppliers like Tyndale House wrote off millions of dollars of accounts receivable But um, they came through that bankruptcy and said, we want to get started again, but without all this debt. So Tyndale House said, well, we will continue to sell to you, even though we just wrote off something like $1.7 million, because those 240 bookstores are a very important part of our distribution network. So it was very frustrating two or three years ago when Family Christian went through bankruptcy again, but this time they literally went out of business. Mm. Wow. And Mark, you were talking earlier about 
how much any of us knew about how long Lifeway might survive before we came in the sound studio, I told you that I had been telling people, I think Lifeway won't survive for another five years. Well, suddenly the news came out last week, no, they're shutting down this year. And that it was and it wasn't a surprise to us at Tyndale House. They went through, uh, they Lifeway went through a dramatic shift in their merchandising strategy uh, about a year ago, they returned oodles of inventory to us and to everybody else. And they frankly didn't have a whole lot of inventory in the stores. And I think customers would walk in and say, where are the books? Hmm. Hmm. So uh, as far back as a year ago, we were very frustrated. We felt that uh, Lifeway was on the wrong track and it turns out they were. So when Amazon came into the picture, I'm really curious how that affected you as being the head of a publishing house. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I'm also maybe even want to walk it back a little bit further because what is the unique value add that a Christian bookstore gave to you guys, given that I'm sure you're, some of your books obviously sold at Barnes & Noble, Borders. Does anyone remember Borders? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that goes back a few years. <laughs> um, or some of these other airport bookstore chains, for instance, So it wasn't necessarily like you guys weren't going to have a place to sell your books. And in some ways, Amazon may have even been a boon to you guys when they came on the scene. Yes, in some respects, Amazon has been a boon for all uh, publishers of all types because they are now our largest trading partner and have been for a number of years. And... The, the key issue, Morgan, that we talk about at Tyndale House is what we call discoverability. How will a consumer discover the new books that, or the old books that we're publishing? If you walk into a bookstore, just last week, I was at the Barnes & Noble here in this area, and it just uh, does good things to my soul to walk into a bookstore. Here are thousands of titles and I can just browse forever, and I, I walk out with a book. In this case, it was a novel by Jerry Jenkins that I hadn't seen before. So I saw it in Barnes & Noble, <laughs> and I bought it. And he hadn't kind of, published it through Tyndale. No. That son of a gun. <laughs> uh, so I discovered it by seeing it in Barnes & Noble. We've all had the experience that Amazon is a great place to shop for anything from books to toilet paper to avocados, and their customer service is just outstanding. But how do you discover new books if you go to Amazon because you're looking for something specific? You know, there are four or five books at the bottom of the screen that say people who bought this liked these. And I look at those and say, yeah, those look interesting too. But what about the other thousands of books? And of course, Amazon carries, I think, literally every book that's in print in the United States. So it's really about the the browsing capacity of a tool like Amazon or a company like Amazon. Or or their ability to help you compare books. I often buy books in translation. I want to read Dante's uh, uh, Divine Comedy or I want to read uh, something by Dostoevsky or Tolstoy and so I'll naturally want to know who the, who the translator is and how do those translators compare. Well, I usually have to go off-site from Amazon and do a lot of research to find that out because their, their information about that level of interest is just not available, which, which I was in a bookstore 
I'd immediately just open the jacket. I'd read a little bit about their philosophy of translation and why they translate it the way they did, and I'd be able to make a decision immediately. So uh, everybody in the publishing industry is very sad that Lifeway is shutting down their stores. But when you step back a little bit, you realize they had 170 stores. That means there were 170 locations where people within maybe a five-mile radius would go to that store. That's really, if you if you put that uh, on a map, that's, that's, a, many that's a lot of small circles yeah. across the United States. Even if they're in highly dense pop, uh, cities. Yes. So, you know, most people no longer live within easy driving distance of any kind of bookstore. And even if they do, it's real easy at two in the morning to just go online and go to Amazon or to CBD. Let's put in a plug for Christian book distributors because they are specifically a Christian distributor of products. So they are a very important trading partner for us at Tyndale House. Especially if you read uh, read on a Kindle and and you're impatient like I am and want it immediately. I remember one time, Mark, I was uh, standing in a boarding line on a at a plane. I was heading overseas, and I wanted a new book to read while I was on this transatlantic flight. And I downloaded a book uh, just while I was standing in line. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and just kind of the expectation that you can do that, right? Yeah, exactly. So you've talked a little bit about how maybe you've had to adjust some of your book selling strategies as brick and mortar have gone away, but also as some of this consolidation was occurring at the same time. But I'm I'm wondering if you have, how you guys have leaned into solving that problem of discoverability and what that kind of looks like in the strategies that you employ for people to find your work. Two things come to mind, Morgan. One is we've invested a lot of money in our own website at Tyndale House so that people can come and browse for Tyndale books on our website, and many of them buy directly through our website, or we know that many of them end up going to Amazon, and that's fine with us, but they came to our website to discover those books or Bibles that we publish. The other thing is that uh, social media is becoming more and more important You know, here we are doing a podcast, which fits into that broad category of social media. And we find that when authors have a large social media platform, that becomes a very, very important way to communicate to potential consumers, here's a new book that I'm excited about. So does that maybe change the types of people that get book deals? Realistically, it does. Mark and I were just chatting a few minutes ago about the fact that he's working on a book and is hoping that Tyndale House will publish it. And more and more, uh, we're looking for authors that have a huge social media presence because, how are you doing at social media? His newsletter is the most popular one here. But we, We feel like we need that connection with that author's interested audience in order to get the word out. That's part of the, the new reality of book publishing today. How would you have described the type of calculus that you would have looked at before this time? When there were still bookstore chains, and fortunately there is st- still Barnes & Noble, but they don't carry many Christian books. Uh, when we had the family 
uh, Christian chain and up until now the Lifeway chain, between those two accounts, that was more than 400 bookstores across the country. And there are still, I don't know how many, 1,000 or 1,500 independent Christian bookstores. So those were important places for people to go, browse, find books. But, you know, now we don't have the Family Christian, and soon we won't have any Lifeways and there just aren't that many independent well, stores. I think there's also been a change in publishing all across the board with the pressure, the financial pressures on publishers. My understanding, and you can correct me on this, is that one of a job of a book book editor back in the day was to be looking for to discover new authors, whether they had an audience or not, and to and to be willing to try out someone and give publish a book or two of of his or hers and see if they gain some some traction. I don't know that publishers have that luxury anymore to do that, but I do I, I do hear stories about that in the New York publishing world. I don't know if that was true in the Christian publishing world. Yes, um, publishing new authors has always been an important part of publishing, but it's tougher and tougher to do that today. You know, Christian bookstores do sell Christian books. Um, they also kind of are almost like a Christian third place, if you will, where you can have author, artist meet and greets or signings or kind of promote whatever type of um, Christian literary subculture um, this particular bookstore might be trying to foster. So when there is this disappearance of Christian bookstores, you know, you're kind of losing out on some of that um, ability to, to express that stuff. But what other casualties do you see there being when Christian bookstores go out of business? There's been a resurgence over the past 10 years of larger churches trying to uh, create bookstores within their church campus. And I don't see a lot of success there. I don't know how many churches have bookstores. In some ways, you would think this is the obvious thing to do. There are uh, people going to church on Sunday morning or Saturday night, and let's have books there because that's where the Christians are. Yeah, but, especially mega churches. Yes, lots of Christians are there. Yeah, but um, we're not seeing a whole lot of success in the area of bookstores within churches. So, Morgan, back to your question: the biggest challenge, once again, is for publishers, but also for the consumer. How does the book get from the publisher to the consumer? And for the most part, that's through online sources. Now, it's it strikes me that. Uh, that personal interaction between the author and the public. I don't know how huge of a portion that was in terms of book sales, but it, psychologically, I think it was. It struck me as a an era that was very important for that for the, the publishing industry in general. Yeah, we call those book signings, and for the most part, those are not terribly successful unless you have a really well known author. So, just last year, we or two years ago, we published a book by. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Nick Foles, and we did um, maybe eight book signings in the Philadelphia area, and they were just wildly popular because people wanted a chance to shake Nick Foles' hand and buy a book and have him sign it. But if it's um, Joe Blow, who has a new book that nobody's heard of, and a bookstore says, hey, we're having a book uh, signing by Joe Blow, Nobody comes because they they don't know who he is. 
Yeah, I do recall an anecdote of that Chuck Swindoll ta- uh, told once. Even someone with as big a name as that, he went to a book signing in some bookstore, and he he said just three people showed up. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just a hard thing to do nowadays. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline, a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. I talked to author Skip Heitzig. The book is called Bloodline. What is the bloodline in the Bible? A lot of times we get accused as believers, you know, we believe in primitive myths and histories of tribal cultures, etc., But to show that there's a definite theme to progressive revelation that we call Scripture is helpful. Since Jesus is called in the last book of the Bible, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it was my plan from the very beginning of the creation to have him come and suffer that. If that's the case, then we would expect to see that theme running through all 66 books of the Bible. I believe they're all tied together thematically in what people have in the past called the scarlet thread of redemption. Bloodline is available wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I'm wondering if we maybe we can talk about Christian publishing for a second. I don't know exactly when Tyndale was founded, but it would be interesting to know the circumstances of what led to its founding. And then maybe if you can talk through... If there was a golden era of Christian publishing or a heyday of it, what what that was like? Uh, Tyndale House was started in 1962, started in my parents' home in Wheaton. And my first job after school when I was 11 years old was packing books in the garage. We started with just one book, Living Letters. That was a project my dad had been, had been working on for a number of years. It was a paraphrase of the New Testament epistles. Because back in those times, in the 1950s, early 60s, most people were still reading the King James Version, and that's pretty tough sledding for most people. So your dad was looking for a way to kind of get his project to a larger audience? He actually submitted his manuscript to a handful of other publishers, Mm -hmm. and nobody accepted it. Mm -hmm. The irony is that he himself was the publisher at Moody Publishing, and... (laughs) Uh, because he would normally have been the person to accept a new book, he submitted this book idea to his boss who said, uh, Ken, I wish you wouldn't ask me to do that because he was afraid that publishing uh, this newfangled kind of translation would turn off donors to Moody Bible Institute. So my dad said, all right, well, I know how to publish. We'll just start it in our home. And he named the 
little tiny company, Tyndale House Publishers, named after William Tyndale, who had translated the Bible into English back in the 16th century. And this eventually, uh, other living portions of the scripture became translated or paraphrased and eventually became the Living Bible, which was a huge breakthrough in Christian publishing back in the 60s. Yes, the Living Bible came out in one volume in 1971 and was the the best-selling book in America for several years running, according to Publishers Weekly. Did we ever get a, a word back from Moody about how? <laughs> Whenever I chat with the folks at Moody Publishing, they just sort of roll their eyes and say, "What were those people thinking back then?" <laughs> I do remember just as an anecdote that you may or not keep, but I, as a boy, I remember the Living Letters being uh, waved by Billy Graham or one of his associates on the televised crusades that if you sent in. I can't remember what we were asked to send. I think if you just requested it, you'd get it. That's right. Do you yeah. know how you, that deal was struck? That's a pretty good deal to get. Well, it, it is an interesting story. Uh, Billy Graham's business manager, George Wilson, contacted my dad and said, Mr. Graham uh, is very enthusiastic about living letters, and we would like to do, we, the Billy Graham Association, would like to do a special paperback edition of living letters. And my dad was very enthusiastic about that. The Graham Association asked if they could print 50,000 copies. Well, that was, you know, just an incredible number to my dad. And uh, George Wilson said, and besides that, we want to pay you a royalty of five cents for every one of these copies that we give away. So my dad very happily gave them permission to print 50,000 copies. Several months later, George Wilson called my dad and said, uh, Ken, we've got a problem. You know, you offered, a, you gave us permission to print 50,000 of these paperback living letters. And um, we forgot to come back for more permission. We've actually published 600,000 copies. Oh we hope that's okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I, we were one of those families that got one of those copies. That's there you right. Go. Wow. So... After you guys published the Living Bible, then what, what what came next? How did you guys move into fiction and nonfiction? Fairly early, we decided to publish uh, other books besides the Bible, and the very first book that we published was by Tim LaHaye, a, oh. a book called Spirit Controlled Temperament. Uh huh. I remember. We that. actually have that book still in print at Tyndale. Is 50, that right? Fifty huh. years later. Wow. Another early author that we published was Dr. James Dobson. We published his very first book called Dare to Discipline. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few years after that, The Strong-Willed Child, and we ended up publishing many, many books by Dr. Dobson. So um, you were asking about fiction. We made a, a purposeful decision to get into Christian fiction probably 25 years ago. And the reason for that is that fiction speaks directly to the heart of the reader. You bypass the head, you go right to the heart. And fiction becomes a great way to communicate Christian truth in the form of a story. So we're very enthusiastic publishers of fiction from a Christian worldview perspective. So you got to talk about how Left Behind came together. You know, that's an interesting story too, Mark. my colleague Ron Beers didn't have any uh, knowledge that Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye were working on this novel that they wanted to call Left Behind. A proposal actually showed up from the agent, Rick Christian, 
uh, just showed up in Ron's box, yeah. his inbox. And Ron read it and said, this is very interesting. And he brought it to what we call our publication committee with the first chapter of what became Left Behind. And not everybody on our publishing committee was convinced that we ought to publish this book about the end times called Left Behind. But I was so intrigued by that first chapter. The rest of the book had not been written yet. But I said to our group, if the rest of the book is as good as this, and if we really do it right, I think I said we could sell 200,000 copies. Well, Left Behind went on to sell something like seven or eight million copies. And then um, one book led to three books, led to six books, led to 12 books. There ended up being 14 books. There are 14? 14 wow, somehow overall. I, I was like, I thought there were seven. Wow. <laughs> You've got to go back, Morgan, and do some catch-up reading. I know I read Left Behind Teens. Right. I remember that. Yeah, and the Left Behind for Kids, or Left Behind the Kids, the series was called, uh, that series sold, I think, several million copies. So uh, Morgan was talking about the heyday of Christian book publishing. Would that be it? Or, or Probably so. Uh, I'll just round numbers. I'll say the years 1995 to 2000, there were still thousands of Christian bookstores. There were, uh, on the general market side, there was the the Borders chain, the Barnes & Noble chain, and then bookstores began to disappear. I don't remember when Amazon first started. I think 1997. Okay. And and they started literally as an online bookstore. That was their thing, selling books. They said, we're going to be the largest bookstore in the world, and probably within a week they already were the largest bookstore in the world. And now they're the largest everything store in, in the, the world. world. Yeah. When did you start to feel their impact? We began uh, selling to and through Amazon from the very beginning. One of our sales reps uh, would meet with Jeff Bezos in his garage when Amazon— Just hanging out with Jeff. Yeah. Amazon literally was a garage kind of operation. So we began selling books to and through Amazon uh, almost from the very beginning. But it was really uh, probably 10 years ago that we realized, oh, they are really a force to be— contended with. And we were seeing the uh, intense competition between Amazon as an online seller and brick and mortar retailers. And of course, it's not just in books. Uh, just a month or so ago, I think it's the Payless uh, chain of shoe stores said they were going out of business. Why? Because people are buying shoes online. You know, you can order three or four uh, pairs of shoes, they get delivered to your home two days later, you try them on, you return two of them, and you never have to go to a shoe store anymore. So during the 2000s, what was that like for you guys then? Was that all that competition that was going on a good thing for Christian publishing or what types of unique challenges did it present? Well, all the challenges that we've already been discussing, how do you get the books in front of the consumer? Okay. So, um, it's kind of funny to talk about social media being an important part of how we communicate with people today, but that is so ubiquitous in all of our lives. You know, everybody has a smartphone, and if you want to find out, you know, anything, you just ask Google, and Google knows the answer to every question yeah. in the world. Yeah, almost as smart as God. 
So Although when, my, my kids gave me a coffee mug at Christmas that says, I don't need Google. My dad knows everything. There you go. <laughs> so when this story came out, we had some just interesting things that I kind of wanted to go back to and and touch on. And, and one of the things that we um, talked about was just about bookstores kind of serving as gatekeepers, whether it comes to content you know, we mentioned in here like sexual content, profanity, or even theology that people may not feel comfortable with. Was that a dynamic that also kind of impacted how you guys did your work at all, knowing that there were Christian monaster, Christian bookstores who were monitoring or keeping track of that, or maybe not going to sell everything that was necessarily a Christian book? It was certainly a factor for us, particularly with Lifeway, because they were more conservative than family Christian and more conservative than most independent. Christian bookstores. So there were some books that we knew Lifeway simply won't take this, but it still fits within our publishing philosophy. So is that so that who are the uh, main online retailers of exclusively Christian books or have a large Christian section? It would still be Lifeway and it would be CBD? Yeah, CBD uh, will now with Lifeway has said they're going to continue on with Lifeway.com. And how big that will turn out to be is anybody's guess. And I don't know if they will carry any books other than the ones that they themselves publish through their sister organization, Broadman and Holman. I, that's I, CBD. Or uh, you mean that's Lifeway? Lifeway, okay. right. And I think <clears throat> there's so much turmoil going on now at Lifeway. I don't think they know what they are going to look like a year from now. Okay. They, you know, they have just a, a huge amount of work to do to close down 170 yeah. stores. So, does CBD have that uh, function of only picking books it thinks its listeners, its readers, want to read? Or yes, the... they don't carry everything that we publish or uh, everything that anybody publishes the way Amazon does. Literally, every Tyndale book is available on Amazon but not every Tyndale book is available on CBD. Okay. What type of book would they not would they not be likely to sell at CBD for as an example to give us an idea? I think they they carry all genres, but when we present books to CBD, they are asking themselves, will our audience be interested enough in okay. this particular so, title? Okay. And of course, Amazon has distribution centers now all across the country. CBD is in Pivoty, Massachusetts, which is a long way from yeah. most of the rest of the country. Yeah. So it takes longer to get get the book. Do they sell uh, electronic versions, CBD? I should know the answer to that, but I don't know. Yeah, neither do I, and I should know the answer, too. There you go. You're our two experts. Ask Google. They probably <laughs> Google, know. Yeah. Siri. <laughs> um, I wanted to kind of read a couple parts from this 2008 article, so which is 11 years old right now. Um, we mentioned a Christian bookstore owner who recently closed his bookstore, and it says that he got a wake-up call when he purchased a Kindle, Amazon's 399 electronic reading device introduced last fall, which is amazing that it has an explanation, and also that it was $400 when it first came <laughs> out, too. And it also mentions here that the Kindle can store 200 ebooks at any time. Readers may choose from 100,000 books, including more than 1,500 Christian titles. I'm pretty sure you can get a lot more. Christian titles. Yes, I don't. I don't know how many total titles are available now through Kindle, but it would be in the 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps. But it's interesting, Morgan, um, you're quoting from the CT article from 11 years ago that was at the very beginning stage of ebooks, and for seven, eight, nine years, our ebook sales were doubling every year. It started off, you know, just tiny, but every year it was doubling. But about four or five years ago, it plateaued, and we have not seen any growth in ebook sales in recent years. I think in part because uh, it's interesting you mentioned that original Kindle that cost $400. Now you get uh, a Kindle, I forget what they call it, but it's essentially like an iPad. The Fire. Yeah. So you have uh, all internet capacity right there. So there's so much competition right on your handheld device for how am I going to spend my time? So ebook sales are a significant part of what we do, but not growing any longer. I understand it's kind of leveled off somewhere in the 30% people who read books, 30% of them prefer Kindle or electronic. For, for us, it's not even that high, Mark. Okay. Yeah, that was another uh, mistake I made in my early years here. As soon as the Kindle came out, I thought this is the wave of the future. And so I kind of kick-started a little book division for CT that went absolutely nowhere. <laughs> so this article continues and says that this particular former Christian bookstore owner says he downloaded an NIV Bible to his Kindle in less time than it took for him to walk his entire Bible department in his bookstore. And at $10, he said it cost less than what he'd pay at wholesale. So what I wanted to talk about here was just do a little side tangent about version and Bible Gateway which are two ways that I access scripture a lot and how you've seen that particularly change the, the segment of your market that deals with selling Bibles. In the final analysis, most people still want a physical Bible, even if they use version as I do on a Sunday morning. If I don't carry a, a physical Bible with me when the pastor is reading from the Gospel of John, I'll just pull out my phone. He thinks I'm doing email, but I'm really opening version. Who knows what? Sometimes they're doing yeah. both. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have members of my family who will not even let me take out my phone if I'm reading the Bible in church. <laughs> yes, Mark. It's they know. verboten. <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about whether you have to pay to download any particular translation. How do, you, how do you guys make money off of this? Just because, I mean, it seems like every single trans. I don't know all the translations, right? So I don't want to overgeneralize. But when I'm going on version and on Bible Gateway, I feel like I have so much access to Bible translations right away, right? And it can just flip between translations seamlessly. Are you guys getting royalties for that? What is the agreement that you... No, we make the New Living Translation available free of charge on version. So, and you're right. One of the things that's very nice about version is the ability to flip back and forth between translations seamlessly so that you can see how different translations have handled particular passages. We see it as simply part of the process of letting people try out our translation. Okay. In the final analysis, we hope they will buy a physical copy. But um, if you're not, if you're publishing an English Bible and you're not on U version, then you're don't you don't exist. You're oh, losing out. Oh, goes back out. to the discoverability. Exactly. How about uh, Logos, or is it called Faith Life now? Um, those are. Um, fairly expensive suites of electronic products. We have the New Living Translation available in all of those. 
and there we do get a small royalty because you I don't know how much you have to pay, $10 or something, to access the NLT, which is our Bible translation. But, of course, those uh, Bible suites have thousands of resources available. Right. And they're very expensive to get into. And if I didn't get uh, review copies, I wouldn't be in them myself. But I find them extremely uh, helpful, and I use the NLT all the time in that for, on that program. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the future. I, I'm just going to read again from our article because it has this this gem from a publisher. I'm sorry, who was the managing editor of that? This is just great. <laughs> it's fun to compare and contrast. Listen, Mark, you were doing this is not slamming you, okay? This no, is just I talking mind. about don't mind it's really all. hard to like predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, but this is from a different someone at a different Christian publishing house. I'm not going to identify them. You can read the story if you want to. But it says, stores of the future may allow consumers to browse a library of books online and burn a disc at the store <laughs> with the store collecting a fee. All right. Well, that did not happen, as far as I'm concerned. And that was the publisher from Zondervan, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Yes, it was. <laughs> they, for a brief time, they were talking about doing exactly that, burning discs in stores. And, of course, the whole physical disc category has now kind of disappeared. So do we, I would love to hear everyone's predictions. They can obviously be mightily wrong, but do, if you have predictions in the, for, about how people will be accessing Christian books in the next 10 or 20 years, I would love to hear them. My sense is that there will still be physical books and electronic books. Audio books are becoming uh, a very big deal as well. So the challenge Continuing, uh, moving forward, is how do we as a publisher get the products into the hands of people who want a physical book? Or even if they want to download an ebook, how do they find out about it? Or if they want to, to uh, download from audible.com, how do they find out about it? So once again, discoverability. But I, I'm confident that there will still be physical books. There just won't be any bookstores left. Mark, do you have? Well, all I can do is talk about a purchaser like myself, and that is I do I buy everything either through Amazon or Audible.com, or I listen to Audible versions from my local library. And the way I find out about them is I do a lot of reading, read other magazines, read uh, reviews in uh, CT. I still follow John Wilson, even though his, uh, his publication, Books and Culture, is no longer part of CT. Whenever John Wilson writes something about a book he's reading, I make sure to note it. So there's certain people, and a lot of that happens on social media. Someone who you're following on social media recommends a book. That's the way they're discovered nowadays. So it puts tremendous pressure, like on our book review editor, Matt Reynolds, who we're one of the few Christian publications left that actually that actually exists and has a book review section. And you can imagine the number of books that come across his desk every day, and he only gets to pick maybe five per issue, for per monthly issue. Now... Fortunately, he's doing more. He's doing like one a week now, also online. But still, that's a, that's such a small number. And he's the first to admit I I don't cover a lot of really good books. I just don't have any space. My prediction is just that we'll be increasingly seeing other ways that people will be engaging with Christian content that don't necessarily have to do with reading. So we have an article in our April issue about the Bible Project, which some of you may be familiar with, but I know is really popular with people at my church and is kind of an easily shareable way on YouTube and it's immersive and engaging and educational and teaches you 
a lot about what the Bible has, um, but it's definitely clearly in a, in a 21st century medium. And so I do think people will continue to read books, but I also think that they'll be looking for alternative ways to engage with Christian content um, in formats and mediums that maybe didn't exist right now. It's already happening, obviously. Yeah, yeah exactly. So maybe it's not a prediction. Whatever. All right. So if people have feedback about everything we've talked about today, they can give us their feedback at CT Podcast on Twitter. They can also send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. As a reminder, this show is made possible by people who value our print content and our print issue. And so we just came out with our April issue, um, which is great. You should definitely subscribe to it. Mark, I'm, I know that you have to read everything, if I recall correctly, before it goes to print. Um, Except and, when I'm away. All right. Well, <laughs> you guys, something might have been snuck in there. You know, we have this section called testimonies, and I don't know if you wanted to talk about it for a second. We actually have an MIT professor who's talking about how she came to faith in this issue, but we have a wide variety of people. Yeah, and I thought that was a refreshing uh, change of pace because um, she talks about her own, you know, uh, struggles with uh, Christian belief as a as a kind of contemporary secular person. She eventually comes to faith. She eventually gets a, works at MIT, which is the more, one of the more prestigious school scientific schools in in the world. And yet, she still finds herself firmly grasping onto Jesus Christ while she's doing her scientific endeavor. And what I thought was helpful was we got a letter from someone, an email from someone said, thank you for publishing this. That's exactly my story. And I'm at MIT too. So the thing about the testimony section is that Matt Reynolds, who is also the charge of that, as well as our book review section, he just does such a fine job of pulling people everywhere from people who are part of drug gangs to people who are in the scientific community, to people who are formerly stand-up comedians and all sorts of professions and lifestyles and world, you know, world situations and how Jesus met him. And it has turned out to be one of our, we've had it now going on for six or seven, eight years. I can't remember now. Yeah. It just still continues to be very popular. And I think people like to hear about how Christ is still working his wilds among, among everyday people. And I was particularly intrigued by that uh, testimonial because she describes that in her early years of trying to find out what is Christianity about, what is the Bible about, she turned to a, what she called a translation, a new translation called The Way, which was an edition of the Living Bible That's right. That's published right. by Tyndale House. Da, da, da. <laughs> da, 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 da. That was unplanned, folks. <laughs> well, if you would like to hear about how The Way helped Rosalind Picard find her faith, you can do so by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today, and it's available in our April issue. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, now we have something called Precious Moments, which is when people get to share stuff that's brought them joy in the past week. Mark Alley. Well, as I've hinted at, I've just been away for the week, and there were a lot of great things about uh, fishing on the White River in Arkansas that were fun. But what struck me particularly was coming back. I stopped in a McDonald's on the way back to have a snack in the afternoon. I was really tired. I needed to get off the road for a bit. And uh, I'm sorry, it, it was a small town. It was such a small town, I can't even remember the name of it, but it had a local paper still, a physical paper. 
and I opened the paper just reading what they were concerned about, and they had this two pages of paid obituaries. I haven't seen that in a while. And uh, they were so, how should I say, so personal and so, so it seems to me, Midwest America, talking about, you know, Irene was born such and such. She met the Lord when she was 13 at First Baptist, and language that was just so local, you know, it wasn't refined, it wasn't sophisticated, but it was so sincere. It was like, it would be great to be born and raised in this town like mm. this, yeah. Especially if they can still support their local newspaper. Yeah, exactly. More power so. to them. All right, where can people hear your words? So I uh, published something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I, report.com. I oh, know, yes, it's Christianity Today slash the Galley Report, ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. And it comes, it's a weekly link to a uh, newsletter that I link to articles and comment. And Mar- Morgan's been upset that I haven't been selling it enough lately. So I'll just say it's the best and greatest newsletter ever published in the entire history of internet publishing. So there you go. There you wow. Go. Way to stick it to me, Mark. <laughs> cool. All right. Mark Taylor. Um, I live in the Chicago area, as you do, Morgan, and spring has been slow to come to this area. Even this morning, I was out walking and the temperature was still in the 20s. But last Saturday, I did a 50-mile bike ride, and that gave me joy to finally get out on my bike again. How long have you had your bike for? I have been riding uh, 10 or 15 years, I guess. But during the spring, summer, and fall, I ride typically about 10 or 11 miles every morning. That's awesome. Yeah, you just get up. And when you get up, I'm assuming the sun's up because the sun gets up super early during, what, like 5.35 sometimes. It's awesome. and But it's also not hot, which is another blessing of that. And I discovered offline that you're also a biker, so that was fun. Yeah, definitely. I love talking about biking for sure. Can people find you on social media or is there a website you want people to visit? Um, I'm afraid I don't do social media. Okay. But uh, we do have... Clearly you're not trying to publish a book. No. I I published a book many years ago called The Complete Book of Bible Literacy, which is still available on Amazon in the used book category. Fair. uh, It was published by Tyndale, but it's no longer in print. All right. Well, I have some other people to thank for my precious moment, which we didn't even talk about, which are the libraries out there on... Friday, I went to a beautiful library in a part of Chicago called Little Italy. And Chicago right now is in the process of remodeling and actually opening a couple new libraries. Apparently, the mayor invested a lot of money in them. And so even though they've been closed for a period, when they're reopening, they have so much more sunlight. They have nice chairs. They have meeting rooms where people can work. And they've just really turned into community hubs, but also places where you can learn things. And so I went to this nice library and I did some of my work on Friday during the day. And then yesterday I went to the library that's the closest to my house and I returned four books on time. Thank you very much. And I checked out four books that I had all of them on hold. And in general, I would just say like libraries definitely make my world a much greater place. And I feel so grateful that they exist, even if bookstores are dying out. I'm glad that libraries are still around and are also like thinking really innovatively about how they can serve the communities that they work in, um, which is just a great way for them to think of themselves. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. 
That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify and a bazillion other different places if you prefer to listen there as well. And if you do go on Apple Podcasts, thank you everyone who rates and reviews the show. We do read your comments and we feel really encouraged and moved by the stuff that you guys write when you review the show. So thank you to everyone who has done this. This music is by Sweeps and we will see you all next week. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Everything Christ suffered on the cross was for you. In Bloodline, Skip Heitzig takes you on a journey to discover the overwhelming truth of Scripture. God loves you. The cross proves how much. Bloodline is available wherever books are sold.